Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi bringer i den her uge en samtale med den britiske journalist, forfatter, podcastvært og forhenværende politiske rådgiver Alastair Campbell. Alastair Campbell er mest kendt for sin periode som rådgiver for Tony Blair. Han blev ansat af Tony Blair, da Blair blev formand for Labour i 1994. Han var kommunikationschef og personlig talsmand for ham, da han blev premierminister i 1997, og var i den rolle indtil 2003. Da Tony Blair skulle på valg igen i 2005, ansatte han Alastair Campbell til at føre ham igennem endnu en valgkamp. Campbell var meget tæt på hele Tony Blairs projekt, Den Tredje Vej, som det blev kaldt, og på New Labour. Det var faktisk Campbells idé, at det skulle hedde New Labour. På den ene side er der ingen tvivl om, at Tony Blairs tid som premierminister er en storhedstid for Labour, fordi det er den eneste gang i de seneste årtier, at Labour overhovedet er kommet til magten i Storbritannien. Da de lavede New Labour, den tredje vej, og moderniserede Arbejderpartiet, blev det et forbillede for skandinaviske socialdemokrater, såvel Poul Nyrup Rasmussen som Anders Fogh Rasmussen, altså såvel en socialdemokratisk som en Venstre statsminister var i Downing Street nummer 10 for at se, hvad det var, de havde gjort, og for at gøre det efter. Så på den måde var det en magtpolitisk succes og en genfødsel af det britiske arbejderparti. For mange venstreorienterede betegnede Blairs tid og den strategi, de førte, den måde, de designede og brandede politik på, en slags politisk forfald. Det blev set som en slags kynisme, at man skulle gøre op med sine venstreorienterede idealer for at kunne gøre sig gæld sig selv valgbar og regeringsduelig. Hele den tredje vej blev set som et opgør med de gamle solidariske principper, som en omfavnelse af nyliberalismen og globaliseringen. Det var derfor lidt en overraskelse for mig, da jeg tidligere på året læste Alastair Campbells nye bog, som hedder But What Can I Do? Det er en bog, der er skrevet som et brev til unge aktivister, til folk, der har opgivet troen på politik og er forfærdet over det, der sker i verden. Til alle de unge mennesker, der efter hans foredrag kommer op og siger, jeg hører, hvad du siger, jeg er redselslagen over, hvad der sker med vores demokrati, men jeg aner simpelthen ikke, hvad jeg skal gøre. But what can I do? spørger de ham. Eller but what can I do? Til alle dem har han skrevet bogen, som er en slags manifest for, at politisk deltagelse nytter noget, som er en opfordring til unge mennesker, for at lave en fredelig politisk revolution, som ændrer den politiske deltagelsesform, genskaber den politiske samtale og gør deltagelse til noget, som man tror på. Det er en idealistisk bog. Det er en bog, som siger, at selvom man kigger ned i afgrunden, og selvom man ser alt det, der er galt, så har vi stadigvæk enorm politisk handlekraft i fællesskab. Det er en bog, som til min store overraskelse har meget stor respekt for politisk aktivisme, og som faktisk gør Greta Thunberg til et forbillede for, for næste generation, men som også siger, at hvis du virkelig mener din aktivisme alvorligt, så bliver du nødt til at tage den ind i parlamenterne, for selvom vi kan tale om, at demokratierne er blevet udhulet, så er der stadigvæk rigtig, rigtig meget magt der. Denne bog er udgangspunktet for min samtale med Alastair Campbell, hvor vi ser tilbage på hans tid under Tony Blair. Jeg spørger ham, om han har nogen fortrydelser i forhold til deres tid, som han stadigvæk er meget stolt over, jeg kan afsløre, at det har han faktisk det er også en samtale om, hvordan det kan være, at der i de 30 år, hvor han har været i politik, er sket så lidt på klimafronten. Han var selv som journalist med til at dække Rive-topmødet i starten af 90'erne og huskede alarmen, når han fortæller i den her samtale om, hvordan klima hele tiden blev trængt i baggrunden, så det nu står som problem i forgrunden, som ingen af os kan ignorere. Det skal til sidst siges, at samtalen fandt sted 
kort efter Hamas terrorinvasion af Israel den 7. oktober. Så når vi taler om det, er det et par dage ind i krigen mod Hamas. Jeg spørger til det, fordi Alastair Campbell sammen med Tony Blair var med til at lave den store fredsaftale i Nordirland, der er kendt som The Good Friday Agreement. Og det de faktisk gjorde der, var at de satte sig ned og forhandlede med terrorister. De satte sig ned og forhandlede med nogen, som havde været med til at slå britiske statsborgere ihjel, og som blev betragtet som fjender af Storbritannien. Dem satte de sig ned og lavede en fredsaftale med, og jeg spørger ham til sidst i vores samtale om, hvad man kan lære af det, også i forhold til Hamas. Her følger min samtale med Alastair Campbell. Thank you so much for taking your time. I was surprised and delighted and very impressed by but what can I do? Uh, and th- there are a lot of ways of putting it. You say, but what can I do? But what can I do? But so what, what can, can I, I do? do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I-, I was surprised and very impressed that someone who'd been so close to political power for a long time had the audacity and the courage to write a book like that and addressing the powerlessness of a lot of young people, the political alienation of a lot of young people and looking at the system from the outside. So thank you for the book. What made you write it? Um, I mean, it's very hard to know why you suddenly decide to to write a book about anything. Um, But I think this one, particularly during the Brexit period and Johnson and Trump and all the stuff that was happening, i just felt this sort of need to try to analyze it, but also I think that to try to say to the next generation that, look, you know, I'm very proud of what we did for New Labour. I think Tony Blair was a terrific prime minister. We did lots of good things, but it's clear that our generation is leaving the world in a mess. And if you, the young people, don't kind of engage and pick it up and run with it, then it's going to get worse, not better. So I actually started writing a very short book, which is just going to be a letter to the next generation. That was the idea. And it was sort of saying, look, I'm like I say, I'm very proud of what we did. Um, here's what here was, here's what we did well, here's what we did less well. But the truth is, it's now over to you. And here's what I've learned, and here's what I think could apply to you. And then the more I sort of thought about it, the more I talked to young people in particular, I think the more I realized there was something bigger going on, which was actually the you know, a real danger to the democracy as we understand it. And so there was kind of going to be an almost a politically existential fight ahead. And I want to be part of it, but I sort of genuinely do feel that the next generation has got to take this on and has got to do politics very, very differently. So that's kind of where it came from. The title, by the way, was just what people kept saying to me. You know, like I said, but what can I do? What, but what can I do? What can I do? You know, the people was... Who was saying that all the time? There's, there's this sense of hopelessness and frustration. We meet that a lot of here, here as well. You know, you have, your podcast has a lot of listeners here, a lot of regular listeners, so they know all about you and Fiona, what you're watching, and how, <laughs> how Burnley is faring in the Premier League. For <laughs> you, but listening to your podcast, you know, I often get the sense that the biggest problem for you is populism, post-truth, and polarization. The three yeah. Ps. That's what you talk about primarily on the podcast. But when I read your book, it's different. It seems that the crisis is more radical. Because sometimes when I listen to the podcast, I think, well, it's as if you assume that if only the populists would go away, that if only these evil politicians would go away and we'd have the good old people coming back, the decent people, then we'd be in a good place. 
But the book is different than that. You have a different mm. diagnosis in the book. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's um, maybe the three Ps is is too easy. To, that, that's giving a sort of shorthand analysis. But I think this sense of politics and political structures just not delivering for people is a deeper problem. I think that, but I think they're all driven by similar things. So I, I actually think that I say in the book that I think that the global financial crisis was the big tipping point into this new era because that was where people felt there was a kind of, you know, a, a class of people that had caused a disaster for them and their families and their jobs and their businesses. And yet, you know, they, they were the ones who paid the price and not the people who caused it. And I think that has been a, that's been a, something we haven't really recovered from. Um, I also think that part of what the book is trying to do is, it's not just that the good people come back, it's that if we get some of the good values back, with a new generation doing them, then I think we have got a chance. But I think if the next generation is as bad as this generation, I think we're in real trouble, real trouble. You know, my, one of my new obsessions on the podcast is just how well the AFD is doing in Germany. Um, and, you know, you, you've seen it in Scandinavia as well, where, you know, we've all, we've still got in Britain, we've still got this image of Scandinavia as, you know, it's where the cool people are and everything works and everybody's nice and all that stuff. And then, you know, you see what's going on in Sweden at the moment. You think, hey, hold on a minute, what's going on? You see some of the debate that's been in your country, you know, in relation to immigration and other things. It's, you know, it's kind of happening everywhere. But I, I'm not pretending that the book offers a, a complete solution. It doesn't. But I think it gives a part of a solution, which has to be analysis of the problem and shared ownership of responsibility for how we deal with it. You know, for, for many people, you were very known here in the late 90s and the early uh, part of the 21st century because New Labour was an inspiration both for the left and the right here. So mm. each governing party would go to London to study with you. And so at the time, you came to represent you personally a, a new kind of politics, a way of communicating politics, a way of branding politics, a way of a new efficient kind of politics that for some people were seen as a decline, as kind of a cynicism that came came into politics. So for them, it would be surprising to see your position today that you're now saying, well, the, what they're doing is, is decline. And I'm not saying that you were wrong and now you're right. I'm saying in this moment, politics has to be a process of learning. And and, yeah. and what, what are your own reflections? I mean, I think the whole thing about me and my profile when I was working for Tony Blair was completely overblown. Um, I was very robust. I was very tough at doing my job. I was. We, we faced a very difficult media landscape in the UK, and I was determined that Tony Blair wouldn't get treated the way that Neil Kinnock did. And that is how I saw my job. But I didn't see that as a job that I was primarily doing by worrying about the media. I was worrying about him and us and what we were saying and doing. And that's where the kind of strategic stuff came from. Um, <clears throat> and the thing is that because there was you know, one of the many myths that gets told about us is that we had the press under our thumb the whole time. I mean, we never did. We never did. Uh, they were always difficult. They were always basically hostile. And one of the lines they ran when they couldn't work out Tony Blair was, well, Tony Blair's just the front guy and really you've got these sinister people in the background all kind of pulling the strings and all that. And it was complete nonsense. Tony genuinely was the leader of the whole thing, of the, of the project, of the thinking, of the... You know, so we, so people like me were kind of helping him to do that. 
And I don't think it was cynical. I think it was, I think it was tough, and and I think the media didn't like it because they kind of feel they have a monopoly. They should have a monopoly on setting the agenda, and we were basically saying, no, that's going to change. We're going to set the agenda, and you're going to follow it. And you know, and most of the time we managed to do that. And I think that cynicism. I write a lot about cynicism in the book, as you know. And cynicism to me is much more when you say. Well, there's no point doing this because nothing ever changes. I never, ever think that. Or, you know, there's no point doing this stuff because they're all liars anyway. They're not all liars. Lots of them are good people trying to do the right thing. But the political system, and this is where Rory Stewart's book is maybe, you know, accidentally quite complementary to mine, is because his book is basically saying, look, the system's completely fucked. (laughs) My book is saying, no, it, you know, we can work with it, but if we have bad people, in charge of the system, yeah, we're in trouble. So I don't think I'm cynical. Uh, I think that, and it's really interesting, you see, I think my, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to me that you would even say that I was known in Denmark for anything, because I always think that Tony Blair's the guy that sort of represented us. And But, you know, in the UK, we, I've had a lot of bad press. I get routinely called a liar on social media, accused of all sorts of stuff. But when I go out and talk to a new generation, there's there's none of that there. They're seeing you know, some of them like that. I went to a school the other day, and this this kid came up to me, and I was I was signing, giving them uh, copies of the book. And this kid came up and said, "My dad's told me I can't have one." I said, "Why not? It's because he hates you." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, fair enough, um, but take it anyway." Um, but so, but I don't think he felt that because he just felt there's this guy comes in to talk to our school. He looks like he's been around the block a bit. He seems to know what he's talking about, and he's tr- and he's telling us, "Well, the world's in a bit of a mess, and it's up to us." And 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 there, that is one impressive part of the book is also there is an idealism at the root of it. There there's a sense of saying, "Well, politics do matter." Remember the lesson of Nelson Mandela. Remember yeah. the lesson of those who fought who fought against the odds. And then there's this asking for what you call a peaceful revolution from the young people, where you offer to assist but not standing. In, in their way, what is it? What is the revolution, the peaceful revolution that that you are hoping for from the young people? I think that they that the level engage of engagement becomes such that the the political system can't ignore them. You know, if you just take two or three things that no, listen, not all young people, and I, I make clear in the book that we shouldn't sort of homogenize them; they're not all the same. Um, and I make the point that you know the the decile of uh, the generation most likely to favor strongman leadership would appear to be young people at the moment. So, you know, they're not all kind of touchy-feely, let's all hang out with Greta people. No. So a lot of them do have that idealism. It's important they keep it. But I I just want the idea of their, their leveling of engagement being such that the current generation of political leaders can't ignore them because the truth is at the moment they do ignore them. If you listen to the debate that happens in most countries, it's, look at what's happening in Britain at the moment with Rishi Sunak. He knows that cover general election, young people are unlikely to vote for him anyway. He needs the old people to vote for him. So he's he's throwing all the climate stuff out the bus. He's doing all this kind of anti, this culture war nonsense. If the, If he felt, actually, the young wouldn't just reject that, but they'd vote against it as well, he wouldn't be doing it. And then I think that, you know, so that's the one thing, climate. Another thing is I think you speak to most people, they look at our electoral system and they think, this is crazy, I don't understand it. 
It just didn't seem logical to them. I grew up in a world where it wasn't that we even thought whether it was logical or not. It was just that that was our system. That's what we did. What are you talking about? But that's no longer accepted. So, But that's not going to change unless people raise their voices sufficient for people, for the politicians to think, well, that's the way I'm going to get elected is to say I'm going to change that. At the moment, it's just not. So they've got to raise their voice. I think what we're seeing here in Scandinavia is that we have young people very engaged on both sides. So we have young men, and they're driving a lot of the, the right-wing agenda, if you look at the Swedish Democrats, yeah. against feminism, against woke, against green transition, against Greta Thunberg, who's a hero in your book. And then you have, uh, on, on the other hand, you have the the progressive young people. And they're driving each of their agenda. They're both very, very engaged, setting their own uh, agenda. At times, I feel that the right are the most, that they they are the biggest number. But but that the the leftist young uh, are most vocal or have more access to to media. <laughs> you see the right is stronger on social media, for instance, driving a- AFD. One thing in your book that's very interesting is that you say that we need to marry new forms of engagement with the established political process. It's obvious that the young come with new ways of engaging and then marry it with the established process. Could you tell us a little bit about this engagement? Well, so. You, you, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you can achieve a lot from from being outside the system. Of course you can. You can campaign. I make the case that Greta Thunberg has moved the dial on the debate. No doubt about that. Um, but ultimately, whatever idealism you may have, it's only going to kind of change anything meaningfully and enduringly if it requires a legislative response. If you get engaged in political processes in the democracy so that, frankly, spending decisions get changed, priorities get changed, laws get changed. I think sometimes because we spend all our time, we spend so much of our time saying, oh, God, those politicians are terrible. I think we forget how much power they actually have. They do have a lot of power. They can set budgets, put up taxes, cut taxes, cut spending, put up spending, build a road there, knock down a school there. They can do that stuff. And we can stand around raging about the decision or celebrating the decision. But what I think is happening, and, and by the way, I think the right, part of the right, deliberately breeds this cynicism because, you know, it helps if everybody thinks everybody's as bad as each other. But it, the minute, once we succumb to that cynicism and say, well, there's nothing I can do, I might as well just get on with mowing the lawn, looking after my kids, you know, going for a run. You can do all that stuff, but if you just opt out of the political process, I think the bad guys keep winning, and the bad guys will get worse and worse and worse. And one thing, of course, where this is front and center for the young people is is when it comes to climate change. And you put Mm. climate change front and center in your book, actually, as well. And I want to ask you first, we've been, uh, you're a little older than I am, but we've been through 30 years of watching how we, we know we came from the Rio summit. They said, well, this is the problem. This is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. At the time, in the beginning of the 90s, most people believed in the political systems. This was not, at the time, it didn't seem like an overwhelming problem. And and at the time, I was 18. I really did believe in the Western leaders would solve the problems that we had. I believe they were the grown-ups, and we could rely on them. Now, 30 years later, we look back and we see what amounts to a historical political failure and a problem that's gotten so large mm. that honestly most of us doubt to what extent we can actually solve it. 
How do you explain, and I know this is a big problem, but you take it up in your book as well, so I can ask it. How do you explain how this failure took place over the last 30 years? I mean, you're absolutely right that it is a failure. And, and we've all got to take some responsibility for this. I think, I think sometimes that, and, and you know, the other sort of big issue that's going through the book is this sort of battle, which I think is the battle of our times now between democracy and dictatorship and authoritarianism. And the fact is that you're right that most people, I covered the Rio summit as a journalist. And, you know, the sort of people you had running countries then, whether they were left or whether they were right, you sort of felt, well, these guys are pretty impressive. They know what they're doing. You know, it doesn't seem that big a deal. And then you get to, I can remember in, I can't remember what year it was. It was still in the 1990s. So Tony was, whether he was leader of the opposition, I think he was still leader of the opposition. And one of his team, I remember, came in to see him and said, look, you know, I'll tell you what you should make the big centerpiece of his big conference speech this year, El Nino. And we were like, what are you talking about? And she said, this is like the coming thing. This is the big, big thing that's coming down the track. And even we, who like to think that we understand the world, we say, oh, come on, you know, we can't sort of scare the people about the world's going to end. So, you know, I think think what the point I'm making is I think that there is so much kind of in the intrays of political leaders day to day that it's very hard at times for them to get their head above the parapet and sort of look a long way forward. Now, and, and bear in mind, at the time, we were doing Northern Ireland, we were doing, you know, coming up to the war in Kosovo, there's there's lots going on. And then what happens is you see, I, I, see a, a, I don't really write about this in the book, but I think Al Gore's story is fascinating in this context. He spends eight years as vice president, frankly, wins an election, but then gets it taken away, doesn't whinge like Trump, and then becomes this kind of amazing uh, articulate advocate makes that incredible film. And that film had a big effect on me. I can remember thinking, God, we've we've really got to wake up here. This is just grim. And yet now, because of this is back to the three Ps, because of populism, polarization, post-truth, somebody like Al Gore is put into the woke label. He's, you know, he's the scaremonger. And so I think that you can't divorce that downplaying of the climate with the three Ps. Um, I've, I've been saying for years, and I never thought it would come to the UK, but it's kind of coming now. I remember whenever I talked to Americans, I'd say, can you explain to me how this climate thing is becoming a left-right issue in America? I don't understand. I really don't understand it. You look at you look at the science, and it's obvious. You should all be on the same page. But what was happening in America was that everything was becoming polarized. And now we're getting something very similar here. Hence, Sunak doing what he did recently with climate. So I imagine you must be meeting a lot of, because here on the podcast that you're meeting with a lot of young people, you're in schools all the time. You must meet a lot of young people who ask the question, why should they trust the systems to solve the problem now? Why should they trust the political system to be able to confront something that we've been failing to confront over the last 30 years? And now it's even a bigger problem. And of course, I'm highly critical of what Rishi Sunak is doing. I find it extremely disappointing. I was surprised that Boris Johnson was actually engaged in a net zero agenda. But on the other hand, I do also understand the line of reasoning saying, we're not going to make Mm. this anyway. And I'm not going to pay the political price for something that's going to fail anyway. So how would you respond to those kids who grew up with that? Um, Well, I think there's a worse problem. You do meet kids like that. You do meet kids, however, who sort of feel... 
they're idealistic enough to think things will work out. But the worst ones that you meet are the ones who kind of don't think it's got anything to do with them. Um, so I, I think there's a kind of, I think the landscape of, of opinion amongst young, young people is much more complicated. I, what I try to do, what I try to say to them, is I completely understand why it feels like it's impossible. I totally understand that. But that's why I put in the heart of the book, the quote from Mandela, everything's impossible until you make it happen. So you, we've got together, we've got to try and find a way of making it happen. This week, talking about the whole Middle East thing, I said this on the podcast this week, that you know there was a time when the Good Friday Agreement seemed a complete impossibility, including just before it happened, by the way. Um, so that's what I say to them. I say to them things like, you know, there's Rishi Sunak. One of the things he did the, at the conference, he announced that they're going to raise by one year every year the, the, the age at which you can buy tobacco. So that eventually a kid aged 14 today will never be able to buy tobacco. Right. When I was a journalist, journalists used to chain smoke in the office. That's all gone. We used to, we didn't even write about smoking and health because most of the advertising was coming from tobacco. So that I try and give them stories of change that seemed impossible at the time, but they happened. Women's rights, gay rights, racial equality, Britain in the European Union, Britain out of the European Union. I don't just I don't just tell them the ones that I like. You know, that's a massive change. So the point I make to them is that if you think nothing can ever change. And therefore, there's no point in getting involved. Nothing's ever going to change. Or the change will be done by people who wish you harm. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an instructive point. And that's the line of reasoning that's going through the book, and we, mm. which makes it, a, I think, on the final analysis, it is a hopeful book. One thing I'm struck about when I hear you on the podcast is that you are obviously alarmed about the way that Britain is still a class society. Mm. You're, there, there's a level of of a good old labor indignation about the class divisions and the private schools. And looking at the UK from Denmark, I'm always impressed by you seem to have a class consciousness on the left and in the Labour Party in your country. You have writers, you have film directors who, who are very, very conscious about these things. But then, on the other hand, I'm surprised why that doesn't translate into politics, why the UK has become such an unequal country. It's a very good point. And I think the answer is, and this is why I think the class issue is so important, is because the people who are, you know, who have the power and the wealth and the authority from birth, as it were, they're very good at making sure they don't give it up. So I think that's the answer. I think that it was interesting. Our education spokesperson, Labour's education spokesperson, Bridget Phillipson, she was on the radio this morning talking about plans for schools. Now, bear in mind, in Britain, 93% of kids go to state school, right? But most of our senior media people use private schools for their kids. So there she is on the radio talking about her big plans for education. 80% of the debate was about, but why are you, you know, taking the, taking the VAT, putting the VAT on school fees that's going to force these schools to shut down? So the debate gets skewed. Um, and I, look, I think we, I think we made a lot of change in this in the in this area. I think we were we did make a more equal society, but a lot of the things that we did for that have been undone. Sure Start was one of the best things we did as a government. That's where you you're helping, you're giving special help to kids who are born into poor families. 
in terms of health support, educational support, family support, money. And the Tories decided this was kind of nanny state stuff and they've, they've got rid of it. Um, therefore, that means we have, you know, they are less likely to kind of climb the social ladder. And so I just think we are, and then I think you throw in the whole kind of, I mean, if you look at our, our social structure with the monarchy at the top, and, you know, it's a monarchy that, although they have no constitutional power, they have a very powerful role within our culture and our society. And you saw that with the Queen's death and, and Charles's coronation. And then you throw in the honour system. You know, we still, you get a medal on your chest that says you're now a member of the British Empire. There isn't a fucking empire anymore. <laughs> Lost the empire. What are you talking about? So, and, and I think it's just this sense of there's a structure. Now, it's better than it was. It's better than it was, but it's still there. I mean, here's, a, I think I said this in the book. Eton College, one school, has produced three times more prime ministers than the Labour Party. It's incredible. Two of them in recent years. <laughs> You're obviously proud of your record in the Labour government. And, and I think any critic from the left should also concede that you were the only Labour government who managed to win power for such a very, very long <laughs> time. Uh, but you also write in the book, and I can I have a feeling that it's something that's nagging you, that you are still being criticized by people on the left saying that you 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 accepted too much of the Thatcher economic agenda. You do consider that. Looking back now and seeing how inequality has grown, how capital power has increased, and what this free trade world that no one knew what would turn into, what kind of world did it that it ended up building for, for us? Do you think you could have done more? Yeah, I think, what was I reading the other day? I was reading somebody who said, as a straightforward fact, globalization is over. I can't remember who said it. Somebody quite surprising, a kind of left, progressive, center-left politician. And I think there, I think we were a little bit romantic, naively romantic about globalization somehow, because we felt it was a way of countries leveling up alongside each other that maybe that was going to happen with people as well. But what, you know, so I think we underestimated how the impact of globalization through immigration, through some of the inequalities that it led to, through some of the obscene wealth that, that, that kind of became the thing that people like to show off. We didn't explain well enough what the possible downsides were and possibly didn't even accept that there were downsides. Um, But I think that the change that's flowed in that time, I'll send you a piece actually that somebody sent me this morning, a guy called Phil Collins that I used to work with. He's written a piece for a magazine here about the kind of intellectual thinking on the left. And it's it's quite interesting because it's, it's kind of, people are really struggling to find a replacement for what we've just lost. Yes. But, they know, but they know that the thing that we've just lost wasn't really worth keeping for very long. So you're keeping the fundaments. And on the point about whether we did keep too much of the, the Thatcher kind of settlement, first point to make is I think that's where Tony Blair's politics genuinely were, and he's the guy who was elected prime minister. I think we played in too much to this idea that the private sector would somehow inherently be better. So we're looking back at, at the, you're saying maybe you did naively romanticize the private sector a little too much. No, no, I, yeah, maybe naive and romantic is over overplays it, but I think that part of our thing, if you think what New Labour was about, it was basically saying, 
you can't have social justice without the economy working well and you can't have the economy working well if you don't have social justice it's a fairly simple kind of principle um but i think we maybe got a little bit hung up on you know the the sort of you know that, that sense of you know look at us how good we are with the private sector um and i think that the political debate around that just became very very sterile and one of the things we talk about in the podcast is this thing about you know we i don't feel very much of an ideas politics at the moment uh insofar as there are ideas they're not very nice ideas you know the the ideas that are making the loudest noise are you know nationalism borders all this kind of stuff on the right um and they dress it up as freedom and all this stuff but it's pretty unpleasant and on the left i think we're you know we too often we play their game and we keep I, you know i'm very defiant about woke in the book because we keep falling into <laughs> their traps on this you know um a lot of the thing i've i think i've realized and developed a better understanding of and you might think i i already didn't know this because it's kind of what i was doing but i think i think we underestimate how how much of political life is shaped by battles over language battles over mm-hmm. words what do words mean and um you know how how, how I, it fascinates me how well fascinates me appalls me but it fascinates me how woke has become this kind of thing in our politics why it's very strong in the uk and the us it's not as strong here for which we are very grateful yeah but i i think if you look at at the biden government if if you if, if you don't think about his age and what he looks like there's actually a progressive program that's absolutely. quite absolutely Absolutely. That's quite impressive, and I think Bidenomics is the the progressive policies of our time. Yeah, uh, and and of course he's trying to do too much with industrial policies. You can't solve all problems of the world with industrial policies. But this week you're at the labor. They have there's the labor conference, uh, mm-hmm. and Keir Starmer, of course, is expected to win general election next year. Should we expect something like a Biden economic agenda from Keir Starmer, or is that too much to hope from the left? Well, we don't have, um, you know, we, we don't have the kind of reserve currency and America is a much richer country and so forth. But first of all, I completely agree with you. I think Biden's been a really good president in incredibly difficult times. I mean, what it must be like governing America at the moment is just beyond belief. And I think he's I think he's done really well. Um, but and, and, and Bidenomics and the whole kind of, you know, the in, Inflation Reduction Act and all that stuff. I mean, it's big stuff. And there is a kind of, America first element to it. There is that sense of this isn't globalization. This is like, you know, this is us. And the only people really that I've seen kind of responding to that in a meaningful way is probably the European Union. And we're, there's a real danger that we, outside the European Union, we're kind of being left out of the debate at the moment. So I do think if you read Keir Starmer's speech yesterday, I think it is, it was, and Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, I think it, I think they were setting out the beginning of something, hopefully, that is. It won't be on the same scale because we're not on the same scale, but with some of the same principles. I think you're right. British political culture has been very influential here. You know, even Margaret Thatcher was influential in the 80s that we realized, oh, my God, we're in a new era now. So yeah. we took the very, very light version of that. Tony Blair was also like a realization. We're in a new era now. Uh Then I think with the many, many prime ministers you've had over a very long period of time we've a short period of time we've had the feeling that you're on an island 
that you're yeah. actually that you're a separate part of the world and I'm sorry to say it like this we have a lot of we love British football we love your music we love your films but this is almost becoming a an a theater that that that, that we're not following is there a sense that the Kiyostama government could bring Britain back into the world not necessarily <laughs> into the European Union I know that's a long shot but back into you know our our common imagination I really hope so. I, I do hope so. I worry that here has been very clear since the referendum that he thinks there's no way that Labour can get involved in even arguing. They don't even really argue against Brexit very much anymore. It's almost like, you know, so but, but he has started to use the language of, you know, it was a bad deal. It's not working. It's damaging business. It's damaging our standing in the world. We've got to fix it. So I think yes is the answer. I think it was Interesting. Recently, he, met, he saw he went to Paris and saw Macron. He went to Canada, had really good meetings with Trudeau. I think he is trying to sort of, you know, put out a sense that Britain kind of wants to be serious again. I think the thing about I, I talked about Keir's speech on the podcast this morning, and I think I know him really well. He's my local MP. He lives just down the road from me, and I think there is a seriousness about him. And the thing that our politics has been missing, particularly since Johnson is seriousness. We don't have a serious media and we don't have a serious politics. The fact that you can have, so the Conservative Party's in power, they're on their fifth prime minister and the Tory party conference, the two people who were getting mobbed everywhere they went were Liz Truss and Nigel Farage. I mean, that is not serious. That is not serious. Um, The fact that we've got this COVID inquiry going on now, the stuff that's coming out about the way Johnson conducted himself, not a serious guy, shouldn't be anywhere near power. And I think I think here is a serious guy. Um, and by the way, interestingly, you mentioned the class thing. He mentioned three times in the speech about being working class. Because um, the thing about Keir, because the Tories project is Sir Keir, you know, he got his knighthood because he was the director of public prosecutions, but he came from a very humble background. And I think a lot of his motivation comes from that. He's kind of proving people wrong all the time. Um, and if you listen to the podcast today, I mean, I, I, I admit, I mean, there've been a lot of times when I've really questioned whether he's got the right approach. But you look at where he is right now, and it's hard to argue against it. Well, I heard it this morning actually, and I had a lot of fun when Rory was asking you whether you were part of writing the speech or influencing it. And Dan said, I think you took a little too long to answer that question. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I don't want to I, I don't want to either understate or overstate. And those sorts of questions are really difficult because I mean, it's like when people say, Are you advising somebody? Well, if I if you meet somebody and have a cup of tea with them, are you advising them? If you, you know, so I know very well one of the people who worked on the speech and he phoned me two or three times and said, you know, what do you think of this line? What do you think of that? But that's about it. So, yeah, no, Rory was being very, very mischievous. And one day, one day I'll tell you what I meant when I said, that's like me asking you where you are. Because he was with, he was, he was somewhere where he didn't want people to know he was there. That's all I'm saying. Now, oh, that made me so curious. I want to uh, talk a little bit about Israel and Hamas here in the end. Because one of the great achievements of the Blair government was, of course, the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> mm. And I was thinking about it uh, the other day because what the big question, of course, is can you negotiate with Hamas, Hamas's terrorist organization? Can you make any sort of settlement without Hamas? So this this question, we don't want to recognize terrorists. 
we cannot make a settlement without negotiating with with terrorists. And what you did with the Good Friday Agreement was you actually sat down and negotiated with with uh, groups considered terrorists and groups that people had terrible experience with. What's the approach that you that what did you learn from that process? Oh, I mean, I think when you when you I mean, look, the IRA did a lot of bad stuff. But what's happened in the last few days is on a different level. So I think if you were to say to anybody within the Israeli context or the or the American context or whoever else would get involved with the Norwegians, whoever it would be, you've got to sit down now and discuss an outcome with Hamas. I think people would find that virtually unimaginable. Um, but at the same time, at some if this thing's going to get resolved, at some stage it will only get resolved by people who want to make change to the way that they're living now. And I think that I mean, one of the most important things that happened in the in the Good Friday Agreement was that, you know, beginning with John Major and then Tony Blair, I think they both made judgments that the terrorists, or at least sufficient of the terrorists to make a difference, wanted to do it in a different way. Now, that was a big call. I think if Netanyahu or anyone were even to think about that call right now, they're finished. There had to be something there. Um, but at some point, you know, how else does this get resolved other than through? And and and, and I think that, you know, again, we've Roy and I have talked about this on the podcast. I the it's not inconsistent to say this is truly awful and what Hamas have done is truly horrific, whilst at the same time saying. If you're sitting there in Gaza and the West Bank and you're looking at Israeli politics and you're seeing the kind of government that Netanyahu's put together and you're seeing some of the things that the people inside that government now say and your life is miserable, there comes a point, I think, where people say, what am I supposed to do? What can I do? <laughs> and then, you know, and, and, and so there's a, I don't know if you saw it in... Um, over where you are, but there was a fantastic, I've mentioned it on the podcast a few times now, you should try to see this documentary series, Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. It's quite amazing, because nearly all of the interviewees are what you call ordinary people. Some of them are, you know, out-and-out terrorists, um, both sides. Some of them are policemen, some of them are soldiers, but it's mainly just people who got caught up in stuff. And it's just incredible to watch because there's various points when you watch it when you think, well, that guy's never going to change his mind. But then three hours later, as he tells his life story, he's changed his mind. Um, that guy's never going to stop killing people. And then there's this amazing, uh, this amazing scene at the end where a soldier who uh, basically, you know, kills, maimed somebody, um, and they're together, and they're talking about it, and they become friends. And now, even me saying now, imagine if that could happen, emerge out of what's happened in recent days, it sounds utterly impossible. Um, but if it, if it, but if you don't have that, and I, I look, I, I, I'd be amazed if there aren't, even if, the Israelis couldn't possibly sit down with Hamas now. They've obviously had a big intelligence failure, but I'd be amazed if there weren't connections to connections to connections, that they were at least 
trying to explore, you know, trying to explore how long is this going to go on? How much weaponry have they got? Where is it coming from? But also, is Hamas utterly united on this? Because I think the thing that we started to realize is that there were there were differences of opinion, particularly within well on both sides. But the the thing about the IRA was that they they were such a kind of solid, united. I mean, they moved as one. Once you started to realize there were there were different voices, there were different shades of opinion. Then I think that's when people started to think, well, maybe change could come, and it did. Looking at it, just that, that will, I think it's the last question that we have the, the time for. Looking at this Israeli-Palestine conflict, it's like, you know, something that we knew was unsustainable for a very long time. And then we had other problems and kind of forgot about it. It's mm. one week ago that Anthony Blinken said it's never been as peaceful as it is now. Uh, no, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan, sorry, yes, <laughs> in, 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 in the Middle East. And when you look back yeah, by now... The, by the way, to be fair to him, I meant to say this to Rory today, he did add with the caveat that you never know. You did say that. <laughs> I, did, I, I, did, I, did, I just saw, saw it referenced um, somewhere. But then looking back now, you can see that. And, and of course, we condemn the, the attacks of Hamas. The method, the barbarism of it is horrific. But looking back now, you can see how Netanyahu has been weakening the, the, the legitimate oh, yeah. authorities in yeah. Palestine. He's been weakening Fatah. He's been in PLF. And he has been chosen. He's choosing Hamas to be the face of the Palestines. Yeah. Uh, and we've allowed this to radicalize as his game with the Palestines, but also within the Israeli government. Mm. Do you think looking back now that we should have done, we, the big Western, we should have done more before? Yeah, well, I, 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 said, I certainly think it's one of those issues that it just... We've talked about this on the podcast over the last few months is why is nobody talking about what's happening in the Middle East? And I, I think what, what happened is that when we think about the Middle East, when you and I were growing up, the Middle East basically meant Israel-Palestine, <laughs> you know, with a bit of Egypt and a bit of Syria and a bit right. You've since then had the war in Syria. You've had, but the real focus of kind of geopolitics has been on Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, you know the guys with the money, um, who become very important players. And I look—I don't know. I'm not an expert in the Middle East at all, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if what this is actually about is Iran, with the help of Hamas, signalling their deep discontent at Israel and the Saudis, Biden trying to push them closer together. Um, I don't know that, but. <clears throat> so I, I think, the, but there's no doubt we've taken her off the ball. And I can remember, I mean, you know, when Tony Blair left office and then he was doing that job as the Middle East envoy, there was a lot of energy. I saw a piece this morning, actually, I might still have it. New York Times yesterday, somebody wrote how many meetings John Kerry had with Netanyahu. It was dozens and dozens and dozens. I'd love to know how many there were during Trump's era. You know, so I think we basically took our eye off the ball. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that's happened is this this whole kind of nationalism agenda means that it's so easy to, for people to say, oh, well, it's over there. It's got nothing to do with us. Just let them sort it out. And I think then the other thing that's happened is Ukraine has just consumed everybody's attention, everybody's money, everybody's commitment. So all these other things just go by the by. 
Yeah, so this is a, a game that's that keeps expanding with with bad news. But luckily, your book offers a hopeful perspective on the world. And thank you so much for taking your time. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad that the Danes were. Maybe I'll get a Danish translation out of this. Yes, you'll, and you'll speak English, though. There's no point. <laughs> thank you so much, Alastair Campbell. It was a pleasure talking to you. Bye. All right, all right. take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Det var min samtale med Alastair Campbell. Hvis man gerne vil lytte til den podcast, som Alastair og jeg taler om, så hedder den The Rest is Politics. Hans medvært er Rory Stewart, som blandt andet har været tutor for printerne i det britiske kongehus, minister i adskillige konservative regeringer. Det er ham, vi refererer til, når vi taler om Rory. Bogen, som han har skrevet, hedder But What Can I Do? Hvis du bestiller den hjem, så gør det gennem din boghandel, så du kan blive ved med at støtte. De boghandler, som vi alle sammen er afhængige af, for vi kan have et nogenlunde velfungerende intellektuelt lokalsamfund og en eller anden form for åndelig infrastruktur i det her land. Den her samtale var ligesom de forrige, produceret af vores gode ven og kompetente hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge, der taler vi med den amerikanske journalist og forfatter Peter Beinart, som gennem årtier har fulgt konflikten i Mellemøsten, skrevet om Israel og om Palæstina og som har sat tid af til at tale med os om, hvordan vi skal forstå konflikten, og hvad der må kan være håbet herfra. Og det er jo der, vi gerne ender. Vi vil gerne gå igennem alt det mørke, vi vil gerne kigge ned i afgrunden, men hvis man gør det længe nok, så stiger den tilbage, som Nietzsche sagde, og det gør den altså med lys i øjnene. Tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.